Right, well, I'm Alan Crookham. I'm the archivist at the National Gallery, and I've, uh, I'm going to be chairing this morning's session, which is all about uh, medical museums or, or medical museums that were. Obviously, it's lost, uh, London's lost museums, lost museums uh, study day. Um, our first speaker this morning, keynote from Sam Alberti, who is Director of Museums and Archives here at the Royal College of Surgeons. And uh, for those of you who are interested, Sam's recently published uh, a book on this very subject, in fact, called Morbid Curiosities, I think. I think um, I saw the flyer, and you can only really see the word morbid, so it kind of comes up a, a slightly strange title. But... Um, I'm not going to sort of uh, dwell on these, these introductions, just going to try and keep time and uh, hand over to Sam for the first talk. Sam. Thank you, Alan. Um, I'd like to thank my, uh, the chairs and my fellow speakers. Um, it's delightfully indulgent to have a, a group of folk whose work I admire so much all speaking on the same day. Um, and especially to, um, to thank all of you for coming on a beautiful sunny day in central London. We'll now spend the entire day in a room with no windows. Um, there'll be an opportunity for tours upstairs in the archives and the museum, which is also a room with no windows. Um, so thank you very much for making this, this sacrifice. In thinking about lost museums, I wanted to talk about the dozens hundreds even, of medical collections and medical museums that used to populate Britain's cities and that are no more. And I wanted to think about not only to give some of the details, but also to think about why they emerged and then why they disappeared. So not only to just reveal some delightful details about lost museums, but also to speculate on why they are in fact lost. So my original title I thought about was called The Rise and Fall of the Medical Museum. Uh, but then it occurred to me that that might not be a very good professional strategy. Um, so I stuck in another rise there, and there's a, there's a, a bit of optimistic upbeat um, at the end, um, just in case the, uh, the college is listening. There had been... What I'll describe today, just for half an hour, um, is... Uh, uh, a wave of medical museums that emerged in the early 19th century and then uh, massive expansion in the collections. So uh, the number of museums increased hugely in the early 19th century, but the number of objects in them um, expanded um, a great deal in the decades around 1900. And that's the, the, um, the point that I really want to make is, is the size and status of these museums um, in the late Victorian um, and into the interwar period. So I'll look at a sort of loose typography of the sorts of museums that emerged in the early 19th century um, and then go on to detail this massive expansion and uh, to talk about their rude health in the interwar period and then to try to speculate on the reasons that they disappeared between about uh, 1950 and um, the last decade. And I'll try to relate this to the audiences for these museums and especially uh, connecting it to changes in medical education and medical legislation. I'll try to relate it to cultural attitudes to the body and I'll try to relate it to the status of museums more generally, intellectually, 
um, and in popular culture. So it's about medical education, I think. It's about the attitudes to the body, scientific and cultural, and it's about the status of museums and the scientific prestige of material culture. I've thought about it rather grandly. So if one wants to go back into the early modern period, I try not to. It gives me a kind of nosebleed before about 1750. Um, the roots of medical collections you could find if you looked hard enough in cabinets of curiosity. There were human remains there. But I think what we now understand to be medical museums emerged... Um, in Britain at least, in London in the middle of the 18th century and even, even allowing for professional bias, there's no denying the importance of John Hunter and his collection as an exemplar of uh, a medical museum. And This is a rather wonderful plan, remembered plan of his um, the Hunter's house that fronted onto Leicester Square and there's a wonderful reconstruction of this by John Ronane up in the uh, museum upstairs. Loath as I am to admit it, Hunter did have a brother, and apparently there is another Hunterian museum somewhere up in the wilds of Scotland. Um, William Hunter had a, also a very large, very important collection, also used for teaching and used for his professional credibility. Um, and this is a plan of um, William Hunter's house and school um, on Great Windmill Street. So even allowing for a, for a bias, the collections of the Hunter brothers are very important as uh, sort of kick-starting um, the development and rise of medical museums in Britain. Around 10, 15 other anatomists in London, um, around the turn of the century after the Hunters' deaths, um, developed really quite important large uh, collections um, that they used. This one's John Heverside or Heverside's collection, um, which he didn't use for teaching, but most of the others did. Um, you can see they follow a sort of, and you'll watch the development of the architecture and layout of these collections, they do follow a sort of common plan, and much of that actually goes back to the way the hunters laid out theirs. Um, you can see the original of this at lunchtime as part of our uh, little archive um, tour, and there's reproductions of it used in the Lost Museums exhibition upstairs. It's one of our one of our favourites. But one challenge for the collectors, those who would display anatomy museums, was the um, cultural environment in which they're working. Because the other sort of place that one could see uh, humans, dead humans, living humans, abnormal bodies on display were the fairs and the freak shows and the circuses and so on. So this is, I like to think about the contrast between Bartholomew Fair and St. Bartholomew's Hospital as two sites that you can see relatively similar things but presented in a very different way to different audiences. Um, so Bartholomew Fair was, of course, described by Wordsworth um, as a parliament of monsters. And I wanted to take that as the, the title for the monograph I was working on, but the, the press said it sounded too much like an expose of the expenses scandal, which was rife at the time, um, which is how come I had to have my backup title. 
So the challenge for anatomists, the challenge for the medical profession more generally, and in particular for surgeons who are still of the sort of hack it off um, variety, um, was how to uh, legitimize their activities and how to legitimize their collections against this sort of backdrop. One way to do that is to move from um, the, the personal and the kind of domestic spaces into much larger institutions, um, one of which we, we sit, on, uh, sit in today. This is them erecting the first building for the Royal, recently chartered Royal College of Surgeons in the early 19th century. The first building on this site um, was uh, finished in 1813, and that's where John Hunter's collection ended up. William Hunter, who had uh, in a huff um, with the Westminster government um, and uh, bequeathed his collection to the University of Glasgow, his, his collections went north instead. So in the quest for legitimacy, in the quest for professional status, the surgeons um, consolidate themselves as a college, and they build the college literally, um, physically, and, and um, uh, conceptually. They build the college around John Hunter's collections. So these are the original um, spaces for the collection, right bang smack in the middle, of what turned out to be a rather rubbish building, um, which they then had to knock down um, and build again in um, 1837. It's this one here. We will, by the way, be celebrating, despite the fact that none of that original building remains, that won't stop us celebrating a bicentenary in 2013 and indulging in lots more um, museum history. So we'll be inviting you all back in a couple of years for, a, for, for more activities, we hope. So this is the um, uh, RCS London, as it was then, uh, the building in 1837. It won't surprise you that anything the London surgeons can do, the Edinburgh and Dublin surgeons can do better. So you'll see um, uh, uh, the, um, the Edinburgh Royal College of Surgeons, Edinburgh built a new building on the same time, and uh, Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, Dublin, um, similar building as well. And what they all have in common is that the middle of these buildings, right at the centre of these buildings for education and for professional prestige, are large medical museums, large important museums in these three. So, you know, what you need if you're building a royal college is a museum. Also, apparently, uh, you need pillars. Um, they seem to be trying to outdo themselves. This is the original building of the Hunterian Museum uh, in. Glasgow uh, built uh, this building completed in 1807 around William Hunter's collections. That's not a royal college, of course, although the faculty of um, physicians and surgeons there had a small collection. The major collection in Glasgow in the early 19th century was William Hunter's um, collection, which was not only anatomy and pathology, but of course artwork and coins and architecture and um, uh, archaeology as well. But that points to an important developing site for developing kind of site for medical museums in the 19th century is the universities. So I won't dwell on the collections that were developing and growing in the ancient universities. Oxford and Cambridge had had collections with anatomical elements. They start to have more explicit medical museums in the early 19th century. The new University of London, later University College London, the so-called Godless Gower Street, um, the large uh, building still stands today, the large central building, again, colonnades, stairs, pillars, this sort of thing, 
And this is the principal floor, the most prestigious spaces, the space that you first go into, which is now a rather grand hall. And it's very telling. There's a library, um, the, the Great Hall, but then the museums are immediately, upon you enter, upon entering, are right there in the most prestigious, most important place in the building. And what's interesting beyond that is that it's originally the Museum of Natural History, um, uh, which emerged into various things, including the Grant Museum, um, which has just reopened in nice premises across the road um, from there. It's anatomy and pathology, which had been in the smaller space, takes over um, in 1859, indicating the importance of these medical collections um, to, to medical teaching in the 19th century. So there's the Royal Colleges, there's the universities. Another important site for medical collections, not surprisingly, and in London in particular, are the teaching hospitals. And this, which I think is the most opposite image if one's thinking about a parliament of monsters, it's basically a museum set up as the Houses of, as, um, as the Commons Chamber. Um, I guess that makes this chapter speaker, I don't know. Um, this is the original uh, museum at Guy's Hospital, um, Southwark, which would later be rehoused in the Gordon Museum. And the all the great hospitals had large museums, and especially when they started developing medical schools um, in the second quarter of the 19th century. Again, really important aspect of the um, teaching were the museums, and they have the added advantage of having a um, regular and swift supply of diseased body parts. They come straight from the ward to the dead room, and the pathologist curator are often the same person and straight into the, um, into the museum. To give an idea of the sort of density in the um, uh, historical geography of London, this map from the Lancet, um, it shows the, uh, the, the hospitals and medical schools, but almost all of them have museums, and there are institutions that have museums that aren't shown on this map. So here we are. Um, that, that's Barts, I believe. I can't see it very well from here. Um, the North London Hospital that would become University College Hospital has a large museum. Um, Guys and Thomas's and one of the anatomy uh, uh, schools down here. Um, at this point, second quarter of the 19th century, the um, uh, medical marketplace is very crowded. There's a great many different places to study medicine, and each of them, almost all of them, have their own large collections. One can draw similar maps in other cities. Uh, between 1820 and 1880 in Dublin, for example, there are a staggering 18, 18 different anatomy schools at various points, and I know that at least a dozen of them had collections of more than 1,000 specimens, so the others may have. Um, and a lot of this is proliferation of offer of medical education after the 1815 um, Apothecaries Act. So it's proliferating in London, anatomy schools with medical museums, and also in the provinces, Manchester as well. Um, 
in case any of my former colleagues, I know that some of my former colleagues and, and uh, um, have come down from Manchester or uh, uh, here, and so I thought I'd do a, just take a pause and have a little uh, sojourn up memory lane back up to Manchester. None of us will be able to remember um, the 1850s um, <laughs> map of the centre of Manchester, but if you know it, um, here's Oxford Road um, Station and here's Dean's Gate here. Um, the infirmary built in the middle of the century there. What I wanted to do here was just to um, indicate where significant medical collections were. Um, so there are private collections. Charles White, the uh, prominent man, midwife, virulent racist, um, had, a, had a large collection. Joseph Jordan, the anatomist, um, uh, also had a large collection that they used for clinical and teaching purposes up here. The red dots are four of the seven anatomy schools um, that sprung up in the um, mid, early and mid-19th century. These are the four with the larger collections, and you can see they're clustered around the infirmary because that's where they, their students walk the, walk the wards, and that's where they can get their specimens from. But then again, the infirmary develops its own collection, and the lying-in charity, later St. Mary's Hospital, which took the collection from Charles White and uh, developed it there. So this is just a snapshot of some of the medical museums in mid-Victorian Manchester, so just one city and just, you know, uh, just some of the museums there. It's also worth noting... Oh, uh, and I'll come back to in a moment... They all closed down in the late 19th century, and um, they start to kind of gather. They, there's one of the anatomy schools becomes rather uh, large than the others and takes the others' museums. They all are transferred down the road to Owens College, uh, later the University of Manchester in the late century, and we'll come back to that. Another site for uh, the display of uh, human remains in a sort of anatomical perspective um, that's the Royal Exchange, which in 1851 um, uh, was host to uh, um, Joseph Kahn's travelling commercial anatomy ex exhibit. And I won't dwell on this because Dr. Bates will be telling us more about Kahn um, later on this morning. But these commercial anatomy museums, as I say, I won't dwell on, were also evident across the country in different um, shapes and forms. So I mentioned that they all ended up coming south down the Oxford Road in Manchester to Owens College. The medical school that Owens College built by incorporating these former anatomy schools had right at its centre, this is the 1870s building, right at its centre a large museum space. This is a uh, view from 1894 showing the three-tiered uh, museum space smack bang at the heart of the building and smack bang at the heart of the medical curricula. So where there's this sort of density of different institutions in the early and mid-19th century, in the late 19th century, a lot of these institutions closed down, so you are losing those medical collections. But almost all of them are incorporated into major collections in whichever city it may be, it's usually the university that emerges with the large collection. 
In uh, Dublin, it's actually the Royal College there kind of absorbs the uh, collections from the anatomy schools as they close down. And the anatomy schools closing down and the universities and the uh, medical faculties of the universities as they would become in the provinces, um, that's the sort of shift in the medical education that gives rise to a centralization of medical museums in the late 19th century. And the medical museums that uh, one sees from about 1890 through to the 1930s and 40s are huge. They've absorbed all these smaller collections. A lot of them get new buildings as new medical faculties are built. And they have tens of thousands of specimens. By this point here uh, at the Hunterian and its associated collections, um, John Hunter's mere 14,000 specimens had grown to over 70, 70,000 specimens. And across the board, there are vast medical museums, largely um, uh, pathology, abnormal specimens. Um, this is the museum at Barts, with the rather, rather crudely uh, caricatured um, uh, hand ledger, um, this from the 1930s. Um, Barts was one of the largest of the um, uh, hospital medical museums. Um, and these things here and at Barts and the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh and the Hunterian in Glasgow, they published these huge catalogues. They usually, in the 1820s, 30s, they'd been a sort of single volume of mixed uh, healthy anatomy, diseased anatomy, animal anatomy. They start to specialize the catalogues, and it's the pathology ones in particular. Huge, multi-volume catalogues that take six volumes and uh, 10 or 15 years to publish. The catalogues themselves act as are published and sent around to other places. They're, they become you know, pathological textbooks. And the museums, I would argue... Oh, the museums act as three-dimensional atlases of disease. Every possible um, uh, condition, they aim to have um, a gross pathological specimen. And it's not only gross, there's a lot of, uh, by this point, a lot of slides, a lot of histopathology, and these are gathered together in the museums as well. And I want to reflect now on why it's clear to me that 1880s to 1930s are the peak in size and prestige of medical collections as mirrored, um, I think, in anthropology, natural history collections. Across the board, museums are at the peak in size and then they're at the peak in their prestige and credibility. And I'll just briefly suggest reasons for this. The firstly is the rise of pathology um, as a useful clinical science with bacteriology in the decades around 1900. So the new pathological institutes that are built in the 1900s, 1910s, they include museums. This is from the Royal Free Hospital, um, built in 1913. This is, I love this, this is a ground floor of the Royal College of Surgeons in around 1910, 1915. Um, as you can see, this is you know, where you came in, and the as you can see, the entire ground floor of the college is devoted to the museum. The only people who even get offices is the um, uh, what's now the chief exec, who still has an office around about there, 
and the conservator, my predecessor. Um, four huge galleries about the size of the one you'll see upstairs, or you'll notice those, and then another one. It's clear that museums are big deals in this time. I've indicated that the rise of pathology is one reason. It's also more generally about the intellectual primacy of material culture at this time, and we're seeing this across the disciplines, as I indicated. Culturally, museums are terrifically popular, and museums of natural history and science as well. Recently, um, you know, it's only a couple of decades since the natural history collections had moved from Bloomsbury to be the what is now the Natural History Museum. And of course, 1880 to 1930, you'll note, is also the payday of empire. So the, natural, the other museums are getting a great deal um, coming in from across um, the colonies. Medical museums, too. A lot of colonial uh, practitioners are sending things back. Um, and also, of course, because there's a lot of uh, comparative anatomy, a lot of natural history, and that's being sent in. However, 1941, um, uh, rather nasty incendiary bomb puts paid to almost all of that building and about two-thirds of the collections um, and the spaces that had been these grand galleries um, are used for other purposes, as you can see. And there's something quite significant about the, uh, you know, the bombing of the Hunterian in 1941. After the war, there's a very different attitude and a very different use of medical museums because although here they developed two new they do eventually reopen the Hunter and they develop two new teaching collections. And although in 1951 um, a survey revealed there were still 80 medical museums active in Britain at the time, 880, for some reason they're not having the same sort of cachet. Medical curricula have changed. Um, universities have expanded enormously to many more students who can't, you know, do this sort of very close-on work with the specimens. Um, there's a lot of, and as you can see here, there's a hint of it, um, the biomedical sciences have gone um, much more into the microscopical level. Um, they're getting much smaller, not so much interest in whole organisms or gross anatomy and pathology. There's a lot more, as the century wears on, there's a lot more attention to um, digital imaging and... Um, different sorts of media. So although the Welcome Museum of Medical Science is still going along, the um, uh, audiences for these are much more restricted and we gradually see um, collections that had been huge and well used gradually being mothballed. Um, St. Thomas's Hospital, for example, had had a huge collection, um, was uh, um, taken apart in 1957. So by the end of the century, only a few survive. The Hunterian here, of course, had been rebuilt um, and is still, um, uh, by the end of the century, is still attracting 15 or 20,000 visitors. But it's one of the very few that still survive. And then at the turn of the century, there's a very curious, contradictory, I think, um, developments um, that impact on the use and cultural um, value of medical museums. The first is the scandals um, at Alder Hay and elsewhere uh, draw attention to the use of and retention of human organs for medical purposes, which gives rise to the Retained Organs Commission, which recommends the Human Tissue Act, uh, which demands very, quite rightly, very um, uh, careful licensing of um, 
of all use of uh, medical use of human remains, but also in museums. And a lot of pathology museums, medical museums in particular, quietly disappear in the time between the act being announced and coming in 04 and coming into um, into practice in 2006. That said, on the other hand, Gunther von Hagen's is attracting millions of people to come and see just, you know, uh, what he claims is a new technique. It's actually a variation of a very old technique. Um, and the parallels between Gunther von Hagen's and the sort of um, uh, commercial anatomy displays that Dr. Bates will talk about, I think, are particularly interesting. So on the back of that, the, those that survive the Human Tissue Act have to come out um, well-regulated, carefully documented, and those uh, institutions that were fortunate enough to have the staff and the expertise to do that, including here, um, come out of, of this um, uh, relatively strong. And those institutions that embrace the use of medical collections explicitly as heritage, um, I think, do rather well. So here, of course, the uh, um, relaunched um, Crystal Gallery in the Ontarian upstairs. Um, Guy's Museum, the Gordon Museum at Guy's, had been there since 1905, and they incorporate a lot of um, AV and IT technology in the museum to keep it a very relevant space. RCS Edinburgh, like here, start to appoint heritage professionals to run the museums, which I think is a terribly good idea, um, as opposed to having the medically trained, who are marvellous folk and, and um, we're very grateful for their support, but it brings a different spin on the use and the audiences for the collections. The rather poor reproduction of the um, Muta Museum in Philadelphia, which goes uh, has gone off in a very different um, uh, audience uh, development to, to some of the rest of us. Um, but across the board, new audiences in the 21st century, we can see in medical museums, um, there's a lot of interest from, from goths and emos and and artists, historians of medicine uh, started taking a very even greater interest than we had already, um, anthropologists, geographers even, um, you know, all sorts of people are paying attention to medical museums, and it's quite an exciting time to be working um, in the, the, the subsector. So we've had the rise, we've had the fall, and I'd like to finish an upbeat note, We'd like to think that we're rising. We uh, will have, by the end of this year, have doubled the annual visitor figures we had immediately after the relaunch. We hope to get 75, 80,000 visitors this year, um, which may not compete with other museums in Lincoln's and Fields, but we're, we're getting there, I think. Um, we're also, uh, we hope to have helped 1,000 researchers in the archives and the research collections um, per year by this point. Um, and also we have a mu the museum upstairs um, that we use for medical training for uh, higher education for postgraduates and undergraduates and we hope to have five or 6,000 trainees and postgraduates go through there as well. So I hope that the rise and fall of the medical museum has now switched and there's a different and uh, new audiences and so on. We can't quite, however shake um, some of the uh, cultural um, uh, problems, uh, cultural associations we have. I've lost the back page of the um, ES my free magazine given out in the tube last night in which Louis Theroux was asked to tell a secret. 
he said, there's a, there's a curious little museum in Covent Garden um, called the Hunterian that has lots of, uh, what was the phrase? Lots of deformed skeletons. It's Grimbo, he said. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, what we thought we would do is hold off on questions. So if you've got any questions for Sam, just make a note of, of whatever it is you want to ask him. And we thought we'd hold off on questions and we'd wait until all three speakers for this first session have given their talks and then we'll take questions and discussion <laughs> at the end.